Well, I just wanted to welcome everybody here today. Um, I'm Clem Herman, for those who don't know me, and I'm the um, course team chair of T160. And I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome you here today and to welcome everyone as well who's viewing remotely, either today or at some future date. Um, and, of course, a special welcome to the T160 students who, after all, are what this whole thing is about. Um, the purpose of today's event is twofold, really. Firstly, to get together um, and to celebrate our achievement in getting the course together and acknowledge the hard work that everybody has put in um, to the process of getting the course online. And the other reason is to present the first in our series of guest lectures, um, which we hope will form a regular feature um, on each presentation of the course and begin to build up a set of online resources about current research um, on women in SET, in science, engineering and technology. In fact, one of the objectives within the overall funded programme is to develop a virtual research unit, uh, bringing together research from a range of disciplines and organisations working on gender and SET issues. So this lecture may well become one of the first in a whole series of um, events in this new initiative. So before we move on to um, our speakers for today, Jane Butcher, who's come from the UK Resource Centre, and Wendy Faulkner, um, I want to start off with a special thanks to everyone who's had an involvement in the development and production of T160. Um, we've achieved a lot in a very short space of time, and we've got a lot to be proud of, I think. So I'd like to thank the fellow members of the course team, um, the women who featured on our CD um, as role models, two of which are here with us today, um, the LTS production staff who've been in charge of developing the web resources um, and the CD-ROM, and all the regional tutors, of course, who are not with us today but are also involved in the delivery of, of the course in, um, in the tutor groups. And I'd also like to thank the UK Resource Centre for Women in SET, who have not only provided the funding for the development and delivery of T160. This has come from the DTI and from the European Union Equal Programme, um, but also input into the design and the development of course materials and activities, um, into the marketing of the course and into the networking and mentoring events that will follow the course. And I think everyone will agree that this has been an excellent example of successful and effective partnership working, um, which has been achieved through, um, as well, with the help of video conferencing, which has also been a, 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 an innovation in the course development with the dispersed team here and in Leeds. Um, so we're here to celebrate a great achievement and officially launch the course. Um, I feel like I need to have a bottle of champagne or something to <laughs> smash against some, a virtual website somewhere. Um, but in fact, the first presentation is now already uh, in its fourth week, so, and, and the students have just submitted their first assessment, so all seems to be going very well at the moment. But we'll also want to celebrate what we hope will be the start of more great achievements by the women participating in the course um, T160 is a course that will open up new opportunities for women, offer inspiration, and help shape the lives and futures of 
women scientists, engineers and technologists. It's been an exciting year bringing our initial vision into being, working in collabor collaboration across faculties. Um, we've brought together the expertise from a wide range of backgrounds to this process and created something really worthy of celebration. So congratulations to everybody who's been involved. So, okay, so we'll move on now to our speakers. We've got a slight change to the Advertise programme. Um, Annette Williams, Director of UK Resource Centre, was unable to be here. But it is my pleasure to introduce Jane Butcher, who's also from the UKRC. And she's the manager of the Return Campaign, which is the Women Returners um, strand of the work of the UK Resource Centre. She'll say a few words about the UKRC and the wider picture of the work that they're doing with, for women in SET and in particular for women returners. Before joining the UKRC, Jane was director of the Oxford Women's Training Scheme, uh, which offers training in uh, ICT and other positive action training for women. So she has a, a, a very um, important and useful background in coming into the work that she's been doing with us and with the UKRC. So I'll hand over now to Jane. That's okay. Sorry, thank you. Um, hello, everyone. Hello, everyone here. And, um, and also particularly to all of the, the T160 students who are out there in, in the virtual webcast who I'm, I'm very pleased to, to know that we're also in touch with. Uh, as Clem says, my name's Jane Butcher. I manage the, the Returner Strand for the UK Resource Centre. And I just want to quickly give you a little bit of the, the context for the UK Resource Centre for Women in Science, Engineering and Technology and the return campaign and services themselves, uh, which is um, very much central to which is the partnership that we have with the Open University, where the T160 course is very much the cornerstone, really, um, of the, the strategy and the campaign that, we are, that we're bringing together. <clears throat> the context is, um, is some that probably a lot of, lot of the colleagues here will be familiar with. The UK workforce, there's more women in the UK workforce now than there are men. Um, and 55% of set undergraduates across the board are in fact women. And yet women are only 18% of the set workforce. And they, less than 3% of all working women taken as a total are actually working in set occupations. As we know, the vast majority of women are working in service industries, are working in the public sector. Um, and that's, um, it's a sign of the, the great concentration of women in a very limited range of occupational areas, which I'm sure we would all agree is actually um, potentially a limitation on the use of women's talents and potential. Women form approximately 8% of the engineering workforce, a figure which has remained sort of stubbornly, uh, stubbornly stuck really over many years despite um, enormous degrees of positive action and, and, um, and valiant work on behalf of many organisations to actually encourage women to both remain, to enter and remain in those areas. And only 3.9% of full-time professors in engineering are women. And we're going to be hearing from Wendy about some of the issues which might actually be um, contributing to that. 
75% of women with set degrees are then not employed in set areas, and this is, this is particularly the area that our own work in return and in the T160 courses is, is looking at. Um, that figure is, in fact, um, I mean, that, that figure is significantly higher than the figure for men, but it, it's also obviously of significance that the majority of men with set qualifications also don't work in these sectors. So we would indeed hope that, that the work that the UK Resource Centre does largely which is about both creating opportunities for women as individuals but also about culture change and changing the environment within set industries is actually going to benefit everyone, men and women. We would believe that occupational segregation remains one of the major causes of the gender pay gap in the UK, which is still stuck, really, also at an embarrassing 18% and significantly higher than in many other countries. The Equal Opportunities Commission has done an enormous degree of work and written and very positive recommendations recently um, from their uh, from their recent general formal investigation to actually look at ways in which occupational segregation could begin to be tackled systematically through from first entry into learning uh, careers and modern apprenticeships and onward through into the kind of levels where the UK Resource Centre is working. So the aim of the, the UK Resource Centre for Women in SET is to increase the participation and position of women in science engineering and technology and the built environment um, across industry, academia and the public services in the UK. It's a wide remit. We're aiming to work with the private sector, with the public sector, with key research institutes, professional uh, associations and public bodies. Um, and by doing that, by working both with individual employers and with their intermediaries and influencers uh, and bodies who can actually act and represent on behalf of, of those organisations. The Resource Centre has been established now since 2004, funded by the DTI, and that represents the, the coming together and the enactment of the government strategy for women in science, engineering and technology, um, which has grown forward from um, work which has been been done really over many years around the agenda for women in science, engineering, technology, and particularly the background of the Greenfield Report and the government's response in that into, into developing its own strategy, the report on maximising returns, which again looked at the, the severe waste of talent of women who've qualified in science and engineering positions and then um, um, having taken a career break are no longer able to return uh, and succeed in those careers. The, the Resource Centre is presently funded for four years to 2008 um, and in which our, our main focus is around partnership, partnership and catalyzing work with other organisations and institutions such that um, while actually delivering a good deal of activity during that time and working with individual women such as those who will be taking part uh, in, the, in the T160 programme the, the four runs of that program over that time, we're also looking to take forward the work and recommendations from that and see those embedded by the organisations that are working with us over that period. And we're very pleased that the Open University has that expressed commitment already at the outset to take the T160 course into the mainstream of their offer subsequent to these runs of the programme. <coughs> We've also been enabled um, to expand the remit um, for the, the UK Resource Centre in terms of um, the DTI, the funding provided by the DTI um, through the use of equal ESF funding and the, the expansion of a development partnership in addition to the, the core partners for the UK Resource Centre. 
The UK Resource Centre itself has a core partnership led by Bradford College, Sheffield University, the University of Cambridge and, of course, the Open University um, as a core as, as core to that partnership. And we now also have a range of other organisations working closely with us, both in a strategic and delivery role um, around the country in terms of the, the U, serving the UK-wide remit. The framework for action that, um, that the UKRC is, is bringing together is one which moves on, really, from interventions of over the past 20 years and learns from a lot of that experience of positive action initiatives which have supported women through providing access to learning and development opportunities, inspiration and encouragement and career routes. And it builds on the kind of initiatives which um, colleagues within the partnership have undertaken with other intermediary bodies, with careers, careers organisations, careers professionals, educationalists, parents and professional institutes. This work has been run um, as the JIVE partnership, particularly since 2001, and it is the, a jive, the JIVE joining policy joining practice which forms the expanded form uh, of the new equal development partnership of which T160 is also a part. We're focusing um, in terms of the, the strategies for the UKRC on mainstreaming the interventions and, try, and ensuring ownership then with the employers and with the other bodies who actually are interested in both recruiting and retaining and progressing women in science and engineering um, in order to actually achieve sustainable change in future uh, and not the sort of short-term or perhaps more piecemeal interventions which we've seen in the past. So it's key to the work that we do is employer engagement and also the, the knock-on effect of actually supporting women into leadership and decision-making positions and actually seeing also the, the ability of, of women as key influencers at higher levels in also creating change. Another aspect of the work is the support for women-led enterprises, where I think it will be important for us to be looking at the role of women as set entrepreneurs, um, as well as those returning to uh, structured employment. The, the advantage of the, the moment, if you like, is that having said all of this, the, the UKRC and its partners enjoys a responsive link to the government policy agenda. There is, this is a time of, of, of commitment, resourcing um, and interest in this work. We're bringing a lot of people together to, um, to focus on, on, on actions and recommendations from those actions over the next few years. Uh, it's time that, where we can join together to hopefully make potentially a greater impact, potentially also restate some of the arguments which have already been made, but to bring those together in a, in a more focused coalition, perhaps, and, and um, in with more focused work with government and a supportive agenda which recognises the importance of this work for the UK economy and the severe waste, as I say, of losing women's talent and not encouraging the breadth of uh, opportunity for women. The services of the UKRC will include information, advice and knowledge sharing, the coordination and direct funding of, of a range of initiatives, services directly for employers in terms of consultation and advice, which includes a kite marking uh, and awards scheme, and direct services for women, of which the T160 and our direct inquiries line at the UK Resource Centre and support services for women contacting for advice on their careers um, is a central part. We also have initiatives for undergraduates in which um, funding from the Department for Education and Skills um, is enabling us to fund a set-for-work scheme with mentoring, and, um, mentoring schemes with about 14 universities across England. 
<clears throat> the UKLC delivers a range of consultative services then in addition to this in which we really want to develop a responsive uh, and flexible relationship with those partners looking at what, what will actually help to take the agenda forward um, to recruit, retain and progress women in SET and a strategic lobbying and policy role in which, as I've mentioned, the ear of government is hopefully open to us to take the real-life experiences of women, such as those of you out there who will be looking to um, return and develop your set careers in, in the near future, that those lessons and experiences can be, can be taken back and influence policy. The Resource Centre itself is situated in Bradford. It also has a very much a web presence through www.setwomenresource.org.uk and we also operate and will be operating in, a, in an expanded way over the next few months with regional hubs. The regional hubs currently located in the southeast, in Yorkshire and Humber and soon to be also in the northwest of England. We have a base in London, uh, an office base for links with our regional partners through the Science Council and satellite centres in Scotland and Wales. The Scottish Centre is, is soon to begin operation and the Welsh Centre is based at the Women's Workshop in Cardiff and their official launch was held yesterday with approximately 60 um, invited partners uh, uh, from Wales in a very, a very exciting and dynamic event and lots of great ideas coming from them as to how they will work across Wales. <clears throat> this is our logo for, for the return campaign um, and it's around this, this sort of image of the diversity of women who are out there who potentially could return to, to science and engineering and um, the website um, where we would encourage people to go, to go along to look at both the more detail on the return services and indeed on the rest of the work of the UK Resource Centre. Um, again, there's, people are probably familiar with some of these, but these are some of the, the, the sort of scale of the statistics, I suppose, in terms of what we're looking at. That maximising returns report, as I've mentioned, um, highlights that there, there would be approximately 50,000 women with set qualifications not working in those sectors. Obviously, some of those are on career breaks. Some of those are taking maternity leave. Some of those are, in fact, working elsewhere where potentially... The, the availability of flexible terms and conditions and part-time work is actually more conducive than it remains in the, in the set career path that they, that they originally embarked on. Um, the figures would suggest that approximately 24,000 women on a, on a rolling cycle with, uh, with set qualifications would then actually be returning to work each year, but only a third of those would be going back into the set career paths. So it's very much those women, and it's those, those, those of you out there who will be, who will be listening to us today. Um, you are those women, and it's those women who we want to support, to encourage to, to begin their, their return um, to the careers that the, where, they, where they felt they were originally drawn and where their ambition takes them. Um, the value of returns to set, I'm sure I don't need to state to, to this audience, but um, clearly having gone through that, those early careers and qualifications to, to then return into the, these industries represents a rapid return on that pre-existing investment, rapid return both for, for the company, for the community, for the UK, and, and, and the satisfaction for that woman and individual herself, that she will bring company and industry knowledge as well as the maturity and life experience and, and loyalty that I think um, would characterise women making a very positive choice um, to often enter areas where, where the situation is. It's not been easy for them to pursue that career. Um, time and people management skills. 
um, as well as coming along with um, perhaps a different focus and a relationship then providing for a company, a relationship to a more diverse customer base and a more grounded, potentially, um, set of connections with lo the local community, where women have often, during that time, away from the workplace, also become involved in a whole range of other um, public appointments, if you like, those kind of senior public appointments of preschool playgroup organiser and, um, and other kinds of unpaid activities which women do, do excel in, in their representation of and where those, those very experiences can be very much a, a route on the way to, um, to other um, appointments in public life. The, the Resource Centre and the Return Campaign and, and our partners here at the OU are then offering this range of, of packages, the package of support at the moment. We want to generate awareness about the issues and to promote um, the, the potential for returners to set, um, as well as undertaking research and evaluation of the success of the programme. Information, signposting and, and referral services being offered centrally through the UKRC and through our partners in the hubs and, and, and centres in Wales and Scotland. Um, and centrally, this, the online programme which the Open University is offering over to a total of 600 women over the four years, over the two years. And then linked to that, mentoring, networking and contact with employers, um, which will be developed and, and run on a more regional basis so that the connections with employers uh, to whom the, those women may wish to apply in future um, can be made on a on a fairly on a more localised basis and contact with industry mentors which will happen during the course and then the offer of individual mentorship um, following their, their leaving completion of the course. We're currently then investigating um, the form of progression support for women for those fo following the programme in terms of placements and direct employer contact and ways in which employers who are already working with the UKRC and others can be brought, brought on board to actually consider part-time and job share opportunities where those perhaps would not ordinarily have existed. Um, and the forms of vacancy matching such that um, the women who have participated in this programme will then be able to access employers um, supportive and who've been willing to make some of these changes uh, and who would want to be showing that, that connection and linkage to the UKRC. We, um, we will and are, we are already advising employers around um, those issues around forms of engagement and intend to sort of catalyse that into a more structured scheme early in 2006. And obviously all of the women who've participated in the T160 will be kept fully informed of, of other developments of what um, the UKRC and its partners have to offer. Uh, there will also be a small-scale pump priming fund which will encourage these kind of innovative approaches and the Welsh Centre has launched their, uh, their version of that yesterday um, to the partners in Wales. Through mentoring and networking then, the UKRC has a, a range of schemes to address the support needs of women at a variety of levels, which is tar we are targeting specifically women returners and those on career breaks, but also um, other women um, coming through all stages of, of entry uh, and progression through their set careers. So both um, at the very early stages through and those coming through vocational routes, um, also undergraduates, and those um, glass ceiling and higher level mentoring schemes for women who then have become stuck at um, that relatively senior but not the most senior management positions. 
we see female role modelling in our mentoring scheme as, as absolutely central, and the, the current approach is also to work with partners to look to embed the skills and know-how for running mentoring schemes very much within their organisations. Um, and we're also working in conjunction with Mentorset um, as a, another experienced organisation around um, women's mentoring in science and engineering on this delivery. We are very much flexible in the, the work, that, in the approach that the UK Resource Centre is now t taking on this to look to work with companies on their existing schemes in order to widen, the, in, to increase the diversity and, and create greater gender sensitivity in relation to where existing schemes are already in place in companies so that more women are able to actively take part and be supported by them. And we're very interested in talking to companies where uh, higher level and glass ceiling schemes for senior women are perhaps needed. So finally, just to conclude, um, there will be, as I mentioned, there will be events in which the, the T160 participants and, and others who are approaching the UK Resource Centre uh, for support will, can be brought together. Um, and we hope for those to represent a, a, a dynamic and, and lively opportunity for those women to actually be in touch with each other uh, and also for them to make contact uh, with employers and, and with the other partners for progression support. The first of these events will be held in February of next year and um, I'll certainly be very, very excited to actually meet the, the, the women who are on the end of the, the webcast today and those others who will be approached the um, the Open University in the, in the subsequent months. We very much hope that, um, that the model of delivery for the T160 will actually generate forms of online community, and I know that this will be an interest uh, in, in looking at the evaluation of the course from, from, the, from the Open University's point of view. And again, I just want to restate um, our commitment really to um, this level of partnership and the encouragement for all of the participants on the course and the other colleagues um, involved in the programme to actually look for further support and development of work with the UKRC and its partners. Okay. Thank you. Right, thank you very much, Jane. And I think that's been um, a very useful overview of the the work of the UK, UKRC and really set the scene for um, what we're going to hear now about uh, engineering workplace cultures. So it's now my pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Wendy Faulkner, who will talk about her current research work. Um, Wendy trained in biology and then science and technology policy studies at the University of Sussex and conducted her DPhil at the Science Policy Research Unit. She came to the University of Edinburgh in 1988 to set up postgraduate teaching in technology studies and is involved in the development and running of the Edinburgh Masters and Doctoral Programs in Science and Technology Studies. Wendy's been involved um, in working on, on gender and technology issues for 15 years and on industrial innovation. She's got two main areas of research interest, industrial research and development and innovation, and gender, science, and technology. Um, a major project on industry-university research linked, links opened up by a particular interest in the flows and transformation of knowledge used in innovation. Um, her current project 
is ESRC-funded ethnographic study entitled Genders in Stroke of Engineering, and this is what she's going to talk, be talking to us about today. Um, there will be an opportunity to ask questions um, after Wendy's talk. So for those of you who are viewing remotely via the webcast, you can submit your questions or comments to us through uh, the web link, and we'll be able to ask them on your behalf. And obviously, people here can ask them directly. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to hand you over to Wendy um, for her talk. Thank you. Thank you, Clem, for that introduction. It's a pleasure to have this opportunity to share my research with you today. Let me start by sharing just some quotes from some of the interviews that I've been doing, and I'll leave you a minute to just read through them. It is frequently claimed that women who enter engineering have to fit in to a masculine culture. Yet there has been very little systematic or detailed research on the subject, not least uh, because this subject is rather difficult to get, or impossible arguably, to get at using interviews. You have to see them on an everyday basis. You have to feel how different people experience them. And this is only possible using more time-consuming and demanding ethnographic methods of fieldwork. For this reason, I job-shadowed engineers over periods of several weeks at a time in five workplaces, one in software development in the U.S., two in building design, and two in oil field services, these latter four in the U.K. This fieldwork was conducted as part of a larger study, as Clem has just said, entitled Genders in of Engineering, funded by the U.K. Economic and Social Research Council. The study sought to explain better the poor retention and progression of women engineers by focusing not on women engineers per se, but on engineering as a community of practice, men as well as women, in order to reveal any gender dynamics which may be operating within its identities, cultures and practices. A central theme to emerge from the study is that the complex processes by which people come to belong in engineering may be both gendered and gendering. My aim in this lecture, therefore, is to address the questions, are engineering workplace cultures more comfortable to more men than women engineers? Is it easier for men to belong in these cultures? And in more sociological terminology, in what ways are engineering workplace cultures gendered or gendering? I'm using the term workplace culture to capture a rather amorphous collection of practices which characterize everyday interactions between engineers as I observed and heard them. In particular, my data is concerned with four main categories of practices, styles of interacting, topics of conversation, humor, and social circles. Many aspects of engineering workplace cultures are very obviously and directly task or work related. Others reflect engineers' shared identities as engineers 
and yet other aspects reveal people's out-of-life, out-of-work lives and identities. These three strands are inextricably interwoven in everyday working lives, I observed, and necessarily so, because workplace cultures perform two very important functions. First, they oil the wheels of the job and the organisation. Even those interactions which are not directly work-related can play a vital role in this, as we will see. Second, and this is the key issue for my own study, workplace cultures, all three strands we listed earlier, have the potential to shape who is included and who excluded at work. Getting on with one's colleagues is, after all, a huge part of how much people feel they belong and are felt by others to belong. This, in turn, can have a subtle but significant bearing on whether one stays and progresses within either a company or an occupation. The body of my talk provides an overview of my observations about gender dynamics in engineering workplace cultures under the four main categories I listed a minute ago. Using this evidence, I'll then reflect on what I am calling the in-slash-visibility paradox facing women engineers. I conclude by considering how much and in what ways engineering workplaces are men's spaces. I wonder if somebody could get me some water. Thank you. Let us start with styles of interaction. Most engineers do not work in isolation but have to interact routinely with others. This is especially so in building design where engineers collaborate continuously with other engineers, with architects, contractors, suppliers and clients. I was immediately struck by how quickly the engineers I observe get down to business in these various interactions. They all have a fairly standard telephone manner. There's a quick exchange of how are you and fine or all right, thanks. All right, thanks. Before the conversation moves swiftly on to the reason for the call. If the topic shifts, it shifts to other work matters. Interactions between colleagues within the office are often initiated without social preamble, though occasionally, if it's somebody they particularly like or if they're in need of some light relief, engineers exchange some personal information or crack a joke. The overall impression is of work interactions that are cheery and respectful, but strongly work-focused. And this is true of women and men engineers alike. One aspect of building and maintaining working relationships in which I did encounter gender dynamics is through the routine ways engineers address colleagues or collaborators. In one oilfield services workplace, virtually all the men engineers and crew use the American man as a friendly greeting or adjunct, as in, hey man, or thanks man. In the other UK workplaces, the more colloquially British terms mate or pal or lad play the same role. Between colleagues with a close and friendly working relationship, these labels signal common identity and bonds. Between colleagues who are not working so well together, they can serve to build solidarity by saying, we're all in this together, or you're one of us. And when working with a new colleague, client or collaborator, they can be used to invite a growing familiarity, as in, all right, mate, or with less working class overtones, all right, sir. Whatever the context, these labels clearly serve as an act of bonding, but crucially, these labels perform fraternal bonding. In British culture, they are applicable only to men. And indeed, 
as I sat and listened and watched, there is often an audible gap when men interact with women engineers whether man or lad or mate would otherwise be used. In a similar way, the handshake, which I discovered is part of the welcome back ritual when crew come back offshore and greet male engineers, is visible in its absence when crew greet the women engineers at the base. This does not necessarily mean that the men engineers and crew are any less pleased or any less bonded with, uh, less pleased to see or less bonded with the women engineers and their team. In both instances, there seemed to be real affection towards the women too. What it does indicate, however, is that routine ways of signalling such affection and bonds, the handshake and the labels, are not available to women. In these subtle absences, I believe, the fraternal feel of engineering workplace cultures is revealed. These subtle absences may be more critical in interactions with outsiders to the group. For example, when women engineers interact with new colleagues, collaborators or clients who are male. I witness a number of such occasions. On every one, the interactions seemed to me entirely businesslike, respectful and civil. But there was none of the crack nor the familiar labels which the same men would frequently use when building a working relationship with men they do not yet know. In short, there appears to be greater formality when a male engineer works with a female engineer for the first time than, when, than with another male engineer. Bonding between women and men within engineering may be less automatic than between men and men. And I saw hints of a very similar phenomenon cutting across ethnicity and racial lines also. It seems women engineers have to work harder to achieve the same level of easy acceptance with new associates a recurring theme, as we will see. Also not trivial is the near universal use, in the UK at least, of the generic he when engineers refer to other engineers. This can take one of two forms. One is the use of he rather than he or she when referring to an engineer who is not known. The other is the widespread use of masculine terms, men, boys, guys, when referring to engineers on group. Fraser is probably typical. He described himself on many occasions as a nuts and bolts person, but he used the term man management, even though he has women working on his team. In engineering, as in most walks of life, there is little awareness of the potential impact of gendered language, even amongst engineers who would wish to encourage and support women engineers. Many would probably argue that mere words make no difference in achieving this objective but I challenge anyone to deny that when a company director says, we put our key men forward, he is sending a quite powerful message subliminally to both the men and the women of engineering. At best, collective references like, he's the best man for the job, and go talk to the electrical boys, render women engineers invisible. At worst, they render the very category woman engineer a non-secretary. Engineers' topics of conversation often reflect common subjectivities around technology and the work. Every engineer I've ever met has a shared pride and pleasure in the technologies they help create or work with. Amongst building design engineers, for example, publicly visible buildings like the Scottish Parliament are a common topic of conversation. 
Another common theme of work-related chat is people's career progression, or the lack of it. Such conversations can serve to signal what counts in the meritocracy of the community, as was evident in many lunchtime chats amongst field engineers in the oilfield services company I studied. On one such occasion, Paolo mentions that an older colleague was a good staff development person, to which younger Jerry retorts, you've got to worry about someone who's been at that for more than a year. Jerry's comments probably reflect unwritten norms about how one should progress in the company. They may also signal the view that people who do such soft roles as training are not real engineers, or indeed perhaps not real men. His close friend Drew teases Paolo that yours was a bullshit assessment project because it was strongly management rather than technology-oriented. Considerably more shocking is a story told over the same lunchtime about a former female colleague. Tanya didn't count as a girl, says Jerry, and Drew tells how Tanya once felt sick on a rig in bad weather and asks, is this a platform or a semi? They laugh raucously at her ignorance. The upshot, it seems, is that Tanya didn't count as an engineer or a woman. When I reread these notes later that evening, I wondered why this particular story had been told on the first day of a new woman colleague in the unit. I include it here not because I think it's typical. I actually don't believe that similar comments would have been made in any of the other four workplaces I studied, but to illustrate that nonetheless, engineering workplace cultures can be extremely unwelcoming for women. Moving now on to non-work topics of conversation, I find these interesting for what they tell us about whose out-of-work lives are visible at work and what aspects of one's out-of-work identity it is admissible to share with colleagues. As one might expect in a fraternal culture, some conversations reflect stereotypical men's interests, most obviously football, competitive sports and doing up cars. Of course, there are women engineers who share these interests, but many of those I spoke to bemoan the one-track conversations, as apparently do some men. By the same token, Ramesh, who found himself the only male field engineer amongst four women, complained, I've nobody to talk to. Sometimes the conversations get too girly, so I have to just go away. And indeed, one lunchtime I shared with three of these women was taken up with diets and boyfriends. Nonetheless, much of the non-work conversation I heard in all five workplaces is quite wide-ranging and inclusive. Even where, as often happens, there are only one or two engineers in a team. Common topics might include hill walking, DIY projects, film, travel and family. Predictably, the more diverse the workplace, in terms of age, gender, class and nationality, the more wide-ranging the conversation. This said, the less routine conversations which take place with outside associates tend to lean more readily on gender stereotypical subjects as somehow safe common meeting points. In Britain, football regularly provides the needed social glue. A supplier talking to a building services engineer he's hoping to gain business from has remembered the man's local football team and commends how well it's been doing. Another engineer thanking someone for sending some useful images for a presentation closes the conversation lamenting Scotland's dismal performance in the previous night's World Cup qualifying matches. Families can provide another safe common meeting point in conversations. 
A high proportion of men engineers I observed have children. Many have photographs of their kids by their desk and talk readily about them when asked, be they young kids just starting school or young adults embarking on life. Young women engineers often feel pretty marginal in this football and families culture. Building design engineer Julie, not long out of university, nods to the photos on her male colleagues' desks and tells me, having kids is another world from where I am. I'm sure there is much about her youthful life which she would not disclose in a workplace with a lot of older colleagues present. Conversely, in the oil field services company, almost all of the field engineers are under 30 and only a handful of children. Here, stories about boyish pranks abound and children are rarely mentioned. The football and families culture can also have consequences for career progression. By their 30s, many oil field engineers um, become account managers, they leave the field, where an important part of the job is building relationships with the client oil company. One account manager, Youssef, really enjoys this aspect of the job. Astoundingly to me, his principal out-of-work socialising, out with his family life, is with members of the client company, twice-weekly football and weekend activities like barbecues. By contrast, Leah is dreading the prospect of this career move. She's the one who said, I find clients boring. It's all men in blue shirts talking about football all day. Tedious. The clients are mostly older men with teenage kids. As a woman in her 20s, Leah tells me, socialising with these men is hard, not only because they have little in common, but also because they tend to patronise young women colleagues. Gender norms are particularly visible in what is disclosed or not about people's personal lives. In all four UK workplaces, the cultures are heteronormative by omission. No one I encountered is openly gay. By contrast, in the US software development workplace, the head of department is an out lesbian, and there is a general awareness that partners may be same-sex. Yet even here, the culture is gender normative, insomuch as the stories people exchange about their private lives are heavily family-centred. Again, this can act to silence and marginalise socially those who do not have children, be they younger or older, men or women, single or partnered, gay or straight. Middle-aged Michael voiced this to me one day. I would judge that only only his close male colleagues with whom he has lunch know much about his out-of-work life. And a young woman complained that the strong family-friendly ethic in this very Ben and Jerry company can mean that those who don't have children end up working longer hours than those who do because they don't have an excuse for leaving when there's lots of work on. Before I start laughing, I'll water my lips. Humour is, of course, a vital and often defining part of all workplace cultures. Light-hearted joking and sporadic hilarity often intersperse unexpectedly, I felt, the otherwise business-like tone of engineers' everyday interactions. Humour provides a necessary means of releasing tension and of bonding teams. In the UK, this takes that very British form of humour, the slagging, where friends make a sport of teasing or putting down one another. A pertinent illustration for this study is the occasional taunting about hands-on technical prowess. 
Jerry complains lightheartedly to Paolo about the construction of a new magnetic tool he's been assembling, and which, in fact, I had been watching, to which, Jerry, uh, sorry, to which Paolo retorts, three pieces too much for you? Topics of slagging can be wide-ranging, but it always demands a thick skin to some degree. An IT support person who visits the person I'm shadowing says to me when I explained why I'm there, you watching men work? You'll see no work out him. Which drew a dark look from Andrew, the person I was shadowing. There's not much allowance for those who don't like the rough and tumble of this slagging culture. As one older man said, if you can't take it, you've got to adapt. In some workplaces, however, the humour can be quite coarse and offensive. Oil platforms and rigs offshore are an extreme case. The oil field trash or roughneck culture here includes frequent swearing, dirty talk, sexist and racist jokes. In the words of technician Gordon, stuff goes on out offshore you wouldn't dream of doing onshore. It's way beyond pub banter. This can be difficult for field engineers. They are all very young, from privileged backgrounds across the world, and include some women. Whereas the operators and technicians, the crew they must work closely with, are all local, working-class, white men. As Indian Ramesh discovered, they won't welcome and teach you till you show you're a team member. Well, showing you're a team member means not only earning their respect on the job, but also joining in the particular camaraderie in this workplace culture, which in his case meant laughing along with jokes about Indians. After telling me his story, Ramesh, however, quickly adds, it's harder for the women. And commonly, when I spoke to other male engineers and crew about life offshore, they, they, unprompted, they mention women, as in women who stay have to be thick-skinned. For many women engineers, the first encounters are indeed very shocking. Typical of most, most, Ruth from Africa told me she became desensitized to the sexual innuendo, but adds, much like Ramesh, I hope they don't mean it. You mustn't take it personally. That would only run yourself down. Most find ways to live with the culture. Lila from North Africa takes the line that this is me invading their environment, so I have to adapt and just pretend I'm not hearing what I'm hearing. Laura from the United States acknowledges the vulgar humour, as she calls it, but says, it's just friendly banter. I wouldn't be in the industry if I offended easily. For some, however, the swearing, the sex talk, and the widespread pornography which appears to generate it remain an issue. As many of these women discover to their cost, the penalty of objecting to these things is that one can be completely ostracised on the rig. Whilst some men are sympathetic, rig policy in the UK sector, but not the Norwegian, leaves it to individual women to take a stand. Hence Kathleen's conclusion, it can be very lonely if you're fighting battles all the time. Women are so outnumbered offshore that many of the men see it as their right to view pornography and talk dirty in this very closed world. Onshore, the strongly heteronormative culture extends to homophobic humour. And, and of course, I didn't go offshore, so it was only onshore that I really observed things. The rest was secondhand. Some of this is metaphorical, as in, you've got a fucking gay handshake. Some of the homophobia is literal, however. In one animated lunchtime chat, it becomes apparent that the male field engineers have an issue about how dirty they get offshore and about sharing showers with the roughnecks. 
Paolo taunts Jerry that he, quote, spends three hours in the shower because he's, quote, picking up the soup, soap for the guys. Apparently, a former engineer manager from Latin America routinely addressed his colleagues as, hey, you big homo. Jim commented on this to me. You just shouldn't do that in the States. You just couldn't. I can't make those jokes because where I come from, people are too sensitive about the politically correct stuff. Lila also disliked this and told me that this particular manager talked a lot about prostitutes with his colleagues. Yet neither of them challenged him. In this particular workplace culture, it seems inadmissible to censor offensive talk, at least not on the subject of women, sex or sexuality. Paolo, Jerry and the former manager are all respected as very good engineers. Moreover, most of the men oil field engineers I spoke to spontaneously commented that they enjoy the humour at work. It's one of the things that keeps them going, in part because it relieves the pressure from a tough job and in part because they value the camaraderie with their co-workers. Now, this doesn't mean that all of the men are comfortable with every aspect of the culture. Two Arab men commented to me on the swearing, but they join in nonetheless. In this setting, then, any challenges are muted because opposition risks losing membership of the community. The humour I observed in other workplaces is generally less close to the bone than in the oilfield services company. Interesting to me, the only sexual joke I heard in my five weeks in the building design company came from a woman, Ali, made an obvious sexual innuendo about the tasty muffin left over from a lunchtime seminar she had organised. There was raucous laughter all round, in the midst of which colleague Brian voiced shocked surprise, which clearly many others felt that she'd made the joke. The surprise suggested to me that the men would not usually make sexual jokes at work because there are women present. More generally, I felt most engineers take some care not to cross certain lines that might be offensive to others. In addition to this self-policing, I witnessed several occasions on which women engineers, as it happened no men, challenged others for being potentially offensive. There is an explicit ethic supporting this in the software development department in the States. At one large meeting, someone made a quip about handing out Prozac to the management and was immediately called out on this. You don't know how many people in here are on Prozac, said the challenger. Similar challenges in the building design workplaces have to be couched in humour in order to have an impact and probably in order for the challenger not to lose face. A sales rep giving the seminar Ali had organised explained that a new heating control system has been set up so so that whatever changes are made throughout through the day, it will resynchronise at 1am for the next day. So, he concludes, if a woman turns it down one afternoon, it won't be too cold the next day. Ali gasps loudly. He immediately apologises, at which point somebody else pipes up, a woman would have turned it up anyway. As the latter example demonstrates, irony is often present when gender is the subject of levity. One such occasion was interesting to me for what it reveals about changing gender norms. Alistair tells Janice about a male colleague who returned home from holiday with his friends to discover his wife sniggering because she had just arranged to go on holiday with her mother, leaving him with the kids. Janice exclaims in mock horror, shocking performance, and they both laugh. 
I'm struck by the reflexive irony in this exchange. On the, one, on the one hand, Alistair is shocked, as was his colleague, that his wife had the nerve to do this. On the other, they cannot deny the fairness of it, that if he's had a holiday without the kids, so can she. Another example cropped up in a lunchtime chat about a sporty car somebody had just bought. Jerry again playfully suggests the man might be compensating for something else, then pauses before adding small genitalia. There is laughter all round, then another pause, in which Jerry says, grinning, no, I lied. The penny slowly drops. Is Jerry lying about the car being a compensation or about the size of the man's genitalia? It is as if one part of him is saying this is a game, whilst another another part of him has an investment in the outcome of that game. I sense this is a common feature of gender performances more widely these days. Turning now to social circles. Other studies have noted that engineering workplace cultures are often marked by high levels of what gets called male's homosociality, men getting together with other men. And certainly, in every workplace I studied, there are pockets of this. Where numbers allow, women also seek out same-sex company, at least some of the time, as we have already heard. But it would be wrong to overstate I believe, the extent of men-only social circles in engineering. In all the workplaces I studied, the organised social activities, meals out, sporting tournaments and the like, are intended uh, intended for and and, um, uh, attended by everybody. Needless to say, uh, regular football sessions are the exception to this rule. The more informal social interactions are also mostly mixed, Lunch breaks are generally taken to coincide so that as many colleagues as possible on the team can share 30 minutes of relaxed chat. And this will normally involve, by by definition, at least one woman. Some engineers socialise with uh, their colleagues outside of work, and of these friendship circles, the ones I observed or heard about, some are same-sex and some are mixed. The latter tend to revolve around sport and families. I would suggest that the critical question here is not how much male homosociality occurs, but the extent to which men-only social circles and groups are powerful. In two ways. Specifically, one, do they carry organisational power and influence, for example, over how a job is done and who gets promotion? And secondly, are the particular masculinities which they bring together hegemonic, by which I mean hegemonic in the sense that they set a standard for other men. In the software development office, four of the more nerdy or shy men, including Michael, routinely have lunch together. The one time I was invited, the conversation was about the latest version of Microsoft Word. These lunch gatherings should probably be understood as spaces for men whose identities, though important to the job in hand, they are all passionate about computing, as you probably gathered, are otherwise somewhat marginal. None of these men are high flyers in the organisation, nor would they be considered in any sense alpha men. Other groups of men I saw gravitating together during working hours are not so marginal. In both the oil field services and building design companies, there is a range of relatively powerful masculinities, which appeared to fall into two broad age cohorts. The older co- cohort in the oilfield services is the men in blue shirts that we met earlier. 
The younger cohort falls into two identifiable groups in terms of the masculinity's presence, each of which includes some very respected engineers and some alpha men. One is high adrenaline, high testosterone. Leon, for example, joined the industry because he, quote, had energy to burn after university. He and Jerry, who we've met before, relished the extreme conditions in which they worked for two seasons in the Arctic. This group are often loud and posturing when together in the base and enjoy getting up to boyish pranks. In the middle of Jerry's PowerPoint presentation of his assessment project to the senior management in the, manager in the unit, a Drew vocal popped up saying, Hey, fucker, want to go out for a shot? These men are either single or have a string of girlfriends without settling down, whereas the other quieter group of men in the younger cohort are mostly living with girlfriends or married. Like the blue shirts, the older men in the building design company spend considerable time networking with potential clients and associates on the golf course and the like. They wear suits and ties to work every day, where the younger ones generally don't bother with ties and jackets unless they have to. Theirs is a genteel, middle-class masculinity, less slagging humour here, where many of the young engineers, of course, come from working-class backgrounds. Within that younger cohort in this company, I identified several alpha men. These are all respected engineers in their mid-30s who've been promoted to middle-level management roles. They set the tone. I think that's the crucial thing. They set the tone for those they work with closely, not only in terms of how the job gets done, but also in terms of the workplace culture. In the process, I felt these men acted as models of masculinity. Fraser, we've met, is the most quiet and serious, the sober family man, very wedded to his job, though not remote socially. He laughs at a joke, but doesn't crack them very often. By contrast, Paul's persona is quite laddish. One afternoon, Myra on the switchboard, every switchboard should have a Myra, tells Paul there's a personal call waiting for you, to which he replies, tell him I won't bail him out, to laughter all round. Brian lies somewhere in the middle of these two. His conversation reveals that he is both the responsible family man and likes spending time with the lads. In Scottish culture, especially working class culture, spending time with the lads is one of the ways one counts as a real man. And this spills over to some extent at work. The laddish Paul and his team organise a night out for just the electrical boys uh, with the lighting control guys from one of the suppliers. Just like the golf course, these drinking sessions help build working relationships and perform particular masculinities at the same time. Significantly, I identified only one alpha woman in my, all my fieldwork in any of the companies, and this was the lesbian head of the software development department, Susan. She is a widely respected technically, but also very influential, I felt, in setting the tone of the workplace culture in that department. But I'm not sure she served as a model of femininity in the way that Brian and the others do. Indeed, although there are several femininities present amongst en women engineers, I saw none that felt hegemonic in quite that way. To this extent, women engineers, like some of the men, sit on the margins of these workplace cultures. And yet, in spite of being on the margins of the culture, women engineers stand out by dint of the sheer weight of numbers of men engineers. 
Prior research has demonstrated that women engineers are so visible as women that they are often invisible as engineers and consequently struggle to prove their engineering ability. Most women engineers I have met have experienced this at some point, but most claim that any resulting lack of credibility is short-lived. Karen, for example, reports that, as a senior woman who's blonde and girly-looking, and she is, there are people who don't take me seriously to start with, but once they realise I can do the job, it's over. At the very least, I suggest, this visibility issue represents an extra layer of work which women, and not men, engineers must do in order to be seen to belong as an engineer. And it doesn't stop. Even really experienced women engineers can have to re-establish their engineering credentials with every time they encounter a new colleague or associate for the first time. This is part of what I am calling the in-slash-visibility paradox, hence the punctuation, by which women engineers are simultaneously visible and, uh, and invisible. Another part of this paradox flows from the widely acknowledged point with which I opened, namely that women must adapt in order to fit into engineering workplace cultures. Thus, whilst women engineers are highly visible as women, they must also learn to behave as one of the lads, and so in some sense be invisible as women if they are to belong. As we saw, this means going along with sexual humour or swearing, sitting on the margins of conversations about football and families and so on. Alongside the pressure to become one of the lads, there is also pressure not to lose your femininity. Women engineers are expected to blend in, but at the same time not to behave like men in certain ways. They occupy a rather ambivalent space in terms of what constitutes an admissible gender identity. Lila, for example, tells me, I'm one of the guys, that's what they say. But at the same time, she's pleased that she has, quote, managed to stay very feminine, something that the crewmen also comment favourably on. And Leia tries to find what she calls a medium place between girls with nails and feminist, which means that offshore she helps the guys with valves and things but leaves the heavy lifting to them. Other studies have painted a somewhat different picture of women engineers having to either emphasise or play down their femininity. And certainly the dress strategies I observed do not indicate much middle ground. All the women engineers across all five workplaces I studied are either androgynous or conventionally feminine in how they dress for work. I sense that some of those women who maintain a feminine image at work, like Karen, enjoy the dissonance between this and their identity as engineers. Part of the issue here is that being visible as a woman means being heterosexually visible. Male engineering students at my university are reported to view the women on their course as either ugly and lesbians or pretty and out to find a man. And most women engineers, unlike their male colleagues, have, never, sorry, have experienced sexual harassment or flirting from male colleagues or associates at some point. When Martin told me that he doesn't see his women colleagues as women, I realised that he means that he doesn't see them as sexual and in this context, arguably, that's a good thing. I'm convinced that heteronormativity is pervasive in engineering workplaces as elsewhere. And I am not simply referring by this to the normative pressures which keep gay people in the closet at work and which fuel homophobia. Heteronormativity also operates symbolically. 
It does this through the ideology of gender difference that sees femininity and masculinity as necessarily different. Heteronormativity in this sense means that most men and women have an investment in seeing women as different from men, so not losing their femininity and needing to be protected from swearing, from heavy work and so on. More generally, heteronormativity underpins the conventional gendering of the technical social dualism, that one by which technology is so readily associated with masculinity and people so so readily associated with femininity. I believe this dualism in turn helps reproduce the man engineer as the norm and the woman engineer as the invisible non sequitur. But that's another lecture. Let me now draw some conclusions Workplace culture, uh, concerning work, engineering workplace culture as men's spaces. It will be apparent from what I've shared with you that the engineering workplace cultures I studied dif- differ markedly along a spectrum. At one end, the culture in one of the oilfield services bases was strongly a man's space. And at the other, the culture in the U.S. software development part- department was fairly gender inclusive and diversity sensitive. I must stress, however, that in each of these, there were good and bad gender practice in in all five workplaces. My point in doing this fieldwork was not to evaluate companies, I should stress this, but to reveal variety, as I believe I have. The overall picture this gives us is a mixed one. As we have seen, there are a number of gender-exclusive dynamics operating in engineering workplace cultures, which together make these workplaces feel like men's spaces. The subtle absences, the signals of familiarity and bonding not applicable to or available to women. The generic he when referring to engineers. The conversations dominated by men's interests. The offensive humour and sanctions against challenging this. The hegemonic masculinities which set the tone of the culture. Women's in slash Visibility, I didn't do it correctly on the slide there. And the heteronormative and sexualized culture just described. At the same time, the fieldwork reveals a number of gender-inclusive dynamics in engineering workplace cultures. Respectful interactions between men and women engineers. Wide-ranging and inclusive topics of conversation and humor. Mixed-sex socializing and close friendships and the care taken to avoid or challenge potentially offensive jokes, language, and so on. I do believe there are signs of change. Some men engineers who once actively stood in the way of female entrants are now supportive, if only because their daughters are beginning to enter the labor market. Others who for years didn't work with any female colleagues often appreciate the change in the office dynamics now that there are women present and I suspect to learn from the younger men about how to be natural with their female colleagues. All the evidence presented here, um, in all the evidence presented here, we have seen that performances of gender are a common feature of workplace culture. Doing gender, to use the sociological jargon, is often inextricably linked with doing the job. I believe it is significant that workplace cultures in engineering accommodate a range of masculinities, even marginal ones. The laddish blokes, family men, pranksters, macho men, nerdy men, urbane men, genteel men. To the degree that there is space for for diverse masculinities, engineering workplace cultures are likely to feel comfortable to the great majority of men in engineering. 
but to a smaller proportion of women present. At the same time, the operation of hegemonic masculinities brings associated pressures to conform in terms of gender. As we saw with the alpha men setting the tone of acceptable masculinities, the silencing of challenges to homophobic jokes, and the ambivalence of admissible genders, gender identities for women. The key question I would suggest is, are these men's spaces consequential in terms of comfort, belonging, or getting on? Clearly, those who feel comfortable with or who conform to the hegemonic masculinities operating here are more likely to be seen as belonging in the community. These processes are not superficial. People generally find it easier to work with people they like, after all, and can identify with. It is hard to assess systematically to what extent the women and men who are on the margins of the workplace culture lose out in terms of work or career progression as a result. However, to the degree that women engineers are less likely to be identified with the hegemonic masculinities operating and that there are no obvious hegemonic femininities operating, they are likely to find it harder to break in to the inner circles. The what way forward? Clearly, part of the problem with the gendered and gendering nature of workplace cultures is the sheer numerical dominance of engineering by men. In so much as workplace cultures are strongly shaped by the majority group, then a crucial part of any strategy to make these cultures more gender inclusive is to sustain those efforts which directly increase the proportion of women in engineering. But tackling the numbers alone will not solve the problem. Most engineers, male or female, are simply unaware of the more subtle gender dynamics I have described here. Awareness is thus a, a key issue, if not the key issue. Some companies, including the software development firm I studied, have made a real impact on their staff, um, th um, for example, on what jokes are acceptable to tell, through sustained and sensitive diversity training. But clearly there are many challenges, not least... How does one do diversity training effectively without alienating the majority group and creating a backlash? Finally, uh, heteronormativity, especially the ideology of gender difference, underpins many of the gender dynamics in engineering workplace cultures. And to this degree, arguably, diversity efforts need to challenge gender dualisms to create space for more plural visions and versions of masculinities and femininities, to learn, in the words of physicist Evelyn Fox Keller, to count past two. Thank you. Yes, um, <clears throat> thanks very much, Wendy. Um, we'd now sort of move on to um, any questions, so we'll just uh, sit here at the panel. Liz has come to join us to um, pick up any questions that have been emailed in. Um, so we can, um, we can um, respond to those um, as, as they come up. Um, but perhaps if we start now with any questions from the audience here. Anybody got? Yes, Lynn. Oh, could you just wait one second? <laughs> <laughs> <You have to. laughs> 
Wendy, did you find it depressing? <laughs> Are these on? I, ha- I had a lot of fun. <laughs> no, I, I think I think um, I think like gender change everywhere. It's very contradictory, and I, I, I hope I conveyed that. Um, and, I, and that's part of what makes it interesting, really. I mean, it's always depressing to see young people reproduce things you hoped that you'd fought against 20 years. Um, but there's some things they're not doing that we did 20 years ago, and I, I think that's part of the richness of it. I was wondering about relating this to the returners theme. Mm. Did you actually, were, were you dealing with women who were returners? Was it obvious who was a returner? Was there a clear difference, or was it the age group of the women you observed generally younger than you'd expect to see many returners? The, the, the latter, principally in the UK studies, the, the American firm, as it happened, had a lot of parents, male and female, amongst it, no, none of which, as far as I remember, had, had time out in a big way um, for their kids. Um, and, and I have done, part of the study was interview-based as well, so I have done interviews with women who were older and who've had uh, multiple children and, and somehow worked through, uh, through gaps often with that. Um, and, and, I mean, some, I, I don't think I've added anything to what we know already about women returners in that sense. Can we, have we got, any We've got one question here from um, um, Donna Deacon. And she says, what kind of advice would you give to women going into engineering? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Two things go through my mind. The first thing I thought was, be bold. (laughs) Uh, Bold and confident. And in some ways, you shouldn't have to say that. I mean, in other ways, you have to say that to women in all walks of life. I was very struck. Sorry, let me just remember what the other thing that I was, that was going to... Um, I think I've, I've already lost it. I was very struck in some of the interviews I did. One of the features, it seems to me, about those women who choose to do engineering is that, in general, they are the kind of women to seek out a challenge. And they are the kind of women who are actually quite confident, or they wouldn't have done it in the first place. And I think what's sad about what some of the stories I've heard about university education is that it often knocks their confidence out or, or periods, early periods on the job. That, that very lengthy process of becoming an engineer can undermine your, your confidence. It can do that to men as well, of course. So the kind of holding on to you can do this, to being bold, to, to just having the confidence to be there. The other point that then the second one that flitted through my mind as I was thinking about the question was the one that is so, such a feature of what, so many of the efforts to, um, to encourage and support women in engineering, and that's about networking. Um, you often meet, don't you, women who say, I'm not a feminist, but... And um, one of the young women I witnessed in the um, building design company was very fresh out of university. And I asked her, you know, did it bother you being a minority when you were going through university? She said, oh, not at all. But then unprompted she said, but I've made contact with, or, or somebody from this group of women in our company has made contact with me. And actually it's quite nice to talk to them. Of course, what she's discovered is that she's actually the only electrical engineer in her team, in, her com- in that bit of her company. And she wasn't ever the only woman when she was at university. So the dilution factor gets greater, doesn't it, as you go into work 
And so I, she, as definitely somebody who would probably keep a big arm's length from feminism in any, in any guise, nonetheless has very quickly understood the value of solidarity and networking with other, other women. So I guess that would be my other message. Wendy, this um, may not, you may not be able to answer it from, from your particular evidence, but you, maybe you could speculate on it from what you've seen. Um, although you talked about changes, things had changed, I'm left wondering how far is the culture of engineering as a workplace simply keeping up with changes in the general culture, or how much is it changing in its own right? And is it possible to change engineering culture in its own right, or are we simply going to have to wait for changes in the bigger um, culture of our society to start to impact on engineering? I, I think it's a very, very good question, actually. And although it's sociologically difficult to study, I do feel that much of the change I'm seeing is brought about because of wider gender change. And the obvious example was these older men whose daughters are now entering the labour market and, and meeting injustice, and they can't bear it. And, and, and you know, they literally, I've, I've got stories of men I've met who literally stopped their young female engineers going offshore. Without that experience, their careers don't progress. And within a couple of years, they've completely turned around and now say, you will simply make shower space available for them. That's often a reason that's given as an excuse not to send women off. So, you know, I think that's a really nice example, actually, about how wider change does percolate even into the recesses of, of, um, of these kind of bastions. But another sub-question which I would like to read into yours. I read this lecture the other night to my flatmate, and she's in outdoor pursuits, outdoor education. She said, you could have said the, said the same about my workplace or my, the community in which I work. So what is it about engineering, or is there anything about engineering that is particularly masculine or particularly masculine in a particular way? And, and I, think that, I think there are some bits, but I think that's a very interesting question as well. Is this merely, as it were, a function of there being an awful lot of men present? Or, or is there also something about the traditions and work or anything that is particular to engineering? I don't have an answer to that question, but I would float it as one that we, sh we should all bear in mind, actually. Um, and part of, you know, and it is quite important from the point of view of how does one change things, because um, if, if, it's, if there's something about engineering, then we need to tackle that culture within, it's, you know, and, and not just, as it were, do the kind of diversity training that you would do in any, in any sector and in any line of work. There may be something that you have to tailor in the diversity training that you would do in these companies because it's engineering. I have the impression, although you didn't say so specifically, that the uh, workplaces that you studied were in the private sector. Yes, and I just wonder, I sort of have the gut feeling that there would be differences between the private and the public sector. I don't know if you have any feelings about that. And my second comment you really touched on in the previous answer, and that was I was going to say that I feel that a lot of what you observed, you would, you would observe exactly the same in the non-SET mm. environment. And what would be fascinating would be to study you know, if there are differences and what I, the specific differences be. are. Uh, I, I, you know, what are we talking about in the public sector? Universities, public enterprises? I don't think they'd be very different. 
um, you know, I, I often ask, I, I climb as it happens, you know, and I often ask some of the men in my climbing club whether they tell different jokes when I'm not there, because I'm one of the lads when I'm out with them. So, you know, again, that goes back to, is it just because it's a group of chaps together or is there, you know, is there something else? The, the, the other question about other sectors, though, I mean, I thought, although the offshore oil, oil industry is rather particular um, and, and, and needs so much so, I could, t- I could have spoken to you for two hours about that sector, but I was always cautious that that's not typical. But I think you often hear stories from men and women who've gone into... Um, workshops or the shop floor in manufacturing companies who've had to go through some kind of gender rite of passage. And I, I mean, I've known of men who've been terrorized by working class middle-aged women in some form or another, you know. And I think performances of gender in certain workplace cu- cultures that are like an apprenticeship rite of passage performance of gender d- does happen in a number of settings and it wouldn't be unique to, to engineering. But I certainly think there would be parallels with what I, what I heard about offshore with some manufacturing operations. Can I, yes, could I ask, I was just thinking we could ask Beryl her opinion, who, as an engineer who works in the public sector, yeah, whether she yeah. has a, a view on that. As somebody with the role of um, district engineer for a, a district council not so far from here, um, I would say, actually, it is quite different. I have worked in the private sector, and I've worked for a contractor, and I've worked in uh, local authority. And I think in a local authority, because engineering isn't the only function of the local authority, because there's an awful lot of other people doing other things in the same building, the overall gender mix in the building and the workforce as a whole is much more balanced. And as a result, I think the the implications of having one woman engineer, perhaps in a team of engineers, is much more diluted. And therefore, I think you get a much more even um, sort of feel about the place. And uh, the gender differences particular to engineering, are completely lost. I think as an engineer, you're accepted as the engineer for the council, and the fact that you're a woman is immaterial in that context. Even by your colleagues? Even by my colleagues. And I have male engineers who work for me who appear not to have a problem with that either. That's very good to know. I mean, you would would also hope that some some degree of greater awareness in public sector organisations, but I'm not sure if that's the case. I think public sectors generally are very flexible employers as well, and they do actively encourage women in. And I think they're probably one of the the easier places for returners to get back into, since that's one of the topics we're here to talk about today. And I think they will probably find that um, engineering in in the public sector is probably a good way to get back in. Can I pick up one point, um, or one expression you used, which I think is very pertinent, that the overall gender mix in the organisation is significant. And I really, really would like to underline that point. In the oil field services company I studied, it, it has a very active diversity policy around race and around gender for its professional engineers does not extend to the employment of local crew, who, according to some of those I spoke to, run themselves much like the London police are reputed to have run themselves. And one consequence of that unevenness of the company policy, i.e., we really want diversity for the privileged professional classes in our organisation, but we're not bothered anywhere else, is to undermine that policy. Because the women field engineers go in, and there may be 15%, even 20% sometimes, in the community of field engineers, but they go in and 20 field engineers work with 50 
technicians and crew who are all all men. So the, del- the dilution factor for them is enormous. And I do think that's one of the reasons that that was a particularly men's space kind of feel to that organization. Conversely, um, the building services um, company I looked at, there's a kind of slightly different culture depending on who it is they're interacting with at any one time. And, and I, I think engineers, one of the interesting things about engineers is that they are all often very class mobile or class fluent bilingual, if you like, so that they can be quite working class when they interact with the contractors on the building site and the suppliers of their heating systems and so on, and terribly refined when they're talking to the clients and the architects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to. You have to be able part to... Of being part of being a good engineer. Part of being a good engineer. Communication is, yeah. uh, is one of the main skills, yes. Thank you. Yes, um, whilst we're talking about diversity, I'm actually from the Equal Opportunities Office here at the university. Um, certainly in the UK, equality, anti-discrimination legislation is really too um, intended... One of the things it's intended to do is to um, ensure that people work in an environment that is free from harassment. And I just wondered from your research, because quite clearly you've highlighted there are a number of people who are not prepared to challenge what they consider to be sort of an intimidating or hostile environment. And I just wondered if you had unearthed any reasons why that would be. Well, I I hope I showed what they would be in the oil field services company, or at least that that, that, that climate is very strong. um, I mean, I've now come to the view that you need a top-down policy on things like pornography. There are, there, I've got some horrendous testimonies of women who were sent to Coventry for years because they got the pornography to be turned off and taken off the walls. And one of the quotes I could have used, I decided not to f- focus very much on sexual harassment, partly because I think, you know, there's a lot, we know that it happens, there's a lot been said about it, and I wouldn't think that I've found anything that's new. But one of the quotes I could have put in the, the first slide was, um, or maybe it was there still, that I, I should have reported him. Is that quote there? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think that's a really common experience. She was relatively young. She'd been working for a few years, but she was still relatively young, desperate to get on and to show her worth and so on. Feels very, very alone because she's in that highly diluted <laughs> environment in terms of numbers of men and women. And, um, uh, and, she, and she risks, you know, you really have to work closely with these men. You really, you know, it's horrendous conditions in a high wind out in the North Sea. You really want everybody to be helping one another. It's a lot to lose if you're going to be cold-shouldered because you've taken a stand. So I think that's maybe it's a particular case, but it is very real. And I I say it would make you weep, some of the interview material I've got on those kinds of things. In other companies, I I think it's just because we're catching young women who, frankly, because they aren't feminists, they don't believe it happens. And they're really, they're really shocked when it happens to them and they don't always know how to cope and they've never heard about it happening to others because, because they're not old enough to have experienced that. So I think that's also part of what goes on. And it is why you need, again, I think there can be top-down things that are done that makes it clear that we have a policy on harassment, you know, it's unacceptable, and gives them, I mean, you'll know more about this than I do, but it gives people safe ways to handle it and to come out of the situation with their dignity intact. Uh, Your question about whether engineering is different. Mm. Um, Trying to find a good way of expressing this. I think, yes, we need to be aware and returners need to be aware that in engineering, in fact, particularly in computing, there are people, they're preferentially 
people are choosing these tracks because social relationships are less important to them. Uh, and therefore, you have got, you are going to meet clumsy, uh, clumsy interactions that are not necessarily ill-intentioned, but they are people who are very bad at these things. And uh, much as one hates to say too much, you must have a thick skin. At the same time, you, 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 you need to make allowances. You need to be aware. Uh, I'm really glad you've said that, actually. One of, the, one of the lumps of sort of findings that my study has come out with is, um, is, is arguably to dispel this as a myth. <laughs> now, there's no doubt at all we've all met the kind of boffin-like um, or, or, or rather socially clumsy, I think that's a nice way of putting it, engineer. Um, and interestingly, one of the questions I ask people in interviews is, you know, can you describe for me different types of engineers or do you yourself use different labels to, to sort of categorize types of engineers? And almost invariably the first thing people say is to describe that stereotype of the socially inept Terribly clever. And what's interesting to me is that being terribly clever goes with being socially inept. Now, I could say that about some of my colleagues in university. So, so, you know, there is is a syndrome, if you like, out there. But I really don't believe that that's the majority of engineers for, for two reasons. Firstly, the vast majority of engineering work, as I think I said early on in the lecture, is hugely social. You just can't do the job. And not talk to people, you know, you, it, it, non impossible. And um, so, so they learn it. I mean, I was struck when I, I talked to an engineering colleague early on in the study, and she said we have this joke that the difference between an engineering female engineering student and the difference between a sorry, the difference between an introvert engineering student, the norm, and the extrovert is the extrovert looks at your shoes, not his. <laughs> So, you know, engineers love the stereotype because I get these jokes all the time from other engineers. So there's there's something in the community itself that reproduces that stereotype. But firstly, actually, you can't be like that in most lines of work. There are some jobs in research and development where you can get away with that and where it's accepted and tolerated. But out with that area, no, you just can't be like that and do the job. And indeed, I've seen people lose their jobs, men, because they're like that. The second reason that I want to dispel it, or that I feel I have the basis to dispel it, is that I've met a lot of socially inept women engineers and some fantastically socially skilled men. And, and although men, engin- men and women themselves often say, well, women have more better people skills, you know, I ask them sometimes. I've given up asking the blunt question because I don't believe them. I say, you know, do you think there are any areas of engineering that men and women do definitely? And if they say anything at all, because most of them quite correctly say no, but if they, if they mention anything at all, it's people skills. And they might say, well, you'll see more women in project management. And I'd love to know if that's true. I, I haven't seen statistics on that. I don't know if it exists. But I, it, empirically, it doesn't wash with me at all. There's the whole spectrum out there amongst men and women. Some are good, some are bad. And I, I really hope that one of the things that I do is to dispel that myth. And the other part of dispelling that myth is to dispel the myth that women aren't into technology because I can see quite as many passionate statements about math, science, and technology amongst women engineers as you might hear amongst men. I, I would like to, to just come back and say, mm. no, I wasn't saying... Most no, you're not. Like what I'm saying was, on the other hand, that people like that may selectively choose, and therefore you may come across a few extra. And I'm speaking from the Women's Engineering Society point of view. I can say that you shouldn't expect that all women engineers will be cuddly, friendly... <laughs> And everything we ought to, you know, you might hope for more. (laughs) 
Most of us are, I think. It is an issue, though, isn't it? Because there's a strong argument that the image exists, Mm -hmm. the image of the socially inept male being the standard Mm -hmm. engineering student. And there is a strong argument, which I, amongst others in the past, have made that that puts women off. I've I got a feeling we should stop making that argument, even if it's still true, because I think it can become a, self re, a, a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think there's a danger, you know, in, in... And you see women into engineering campaigns that often play to that by saying, look, it's all right for women to come in, because actually engineering is social. And they're making a true statement about engineering, but they're reproducing that gender stereotype about women being sociable. I was interested in what you said, Wendy, about the the kind of the the training and development roles or those actually, you know, the genderising of those functions Mm. and how that was then, if in fact men were then, you you know, you were talking about that being played down, that's not real engineering and then you're also not a real man. And and whether that, you know, what, what the gender differentiation was there, if actually there were more women... If that meant that women and the women you encountered were actually trying to avoid being placed in kind of team leadership or sort of collaborative kind of project management roles, or whether they in fact, you know, were being either stereotypically or, or otherwise drawn towards taking them on. Um, one of the disadvantages of, advantages of doing ethnographic fieldwork is that you can't generalise. Right. So, and, and I would love, I mean, it's actually a challenge for the Resource Centre because I suspect there aren't statistics yeah. on just even the proportions in the different mm-hmm. types of engineering work, and I think it would be very, very interesting to have that data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I know of individual yeah. cases. Um, I mean, a lot of women do get bored with like, software developers. I met a lot of women software developers who said, I got bored with just coding. And I wanted bigger challenges. But some of the men who, well, all of the men who, who choose to go into management would say a similar thing. And they see the more, what, what in sociological terms I would call heterogeneous work of a manager as being really much more challenging yeah. than just where, you know, working out the airflows on a, on, a, on, a, on a duct system. So, yeah. Again, same, you can get that same spectrum yeah. amongst women as yes. amongst men. Yeah. yeah. A comment rather than a question, going back to our previous things about is engineering different. Um, A colleague of mine at Leeds Metropolitan University did some research with women professional golfers, (laughs) and that came up with some very similar and incredibly, absolutely mind-blowing research, which she then wasn't allowed to publish. (laughs) (laughs) Look out for that. (laughs) (laughs) Have we got any any more web questions? All right. So if there is anybody out there watching (laughs) who would like to comment, just click on the comment button and send your uh, question or or comment. Um, We should be able to read that. Has anybody else got anything? One follow-on comment, Mm. actually, from Jane's point there. Um, One... Uh, set of findings which I, which I have um, kind of flows from that example that I gave and that is that how one defines real engineering has quite real gender yeah. implications irrespective of where, where, where men and women work as most engineers will tell you real engineering work is very heterogeneous mm-hmm. it is always social as well as technical um, and yet, a lot of engineers cleave to a kind of nuts and bolts image of engineering. Or, or they, they kind of s- shift and oscillate between it's nuts and bolts and it's nuts and bolts and people. It's actually a friend of mine who I had this conversation and gave me these two quotes and, and he, you know, he, he owned both of those in a way. And 
It is in practice, arguably, rather difficult to know where the boundaries of engineering work is. Are. Um, but I think that if we were to define and if we were to promote an image of engineering work as really very diverse, potentially, and very inclusive of these various heterogeneous roles, then we would be also potentially holding on to some very talented people. I mean, I've got one case study of a woman who, again, a building design engineer, who has a national prize for her role as the mechanical engineer in the building services on an iconic building not very far from our capital city, <laughs> and who has now moved from the firm in which she did that work into a project management job. She's still in building services, certainly. She's still building on the expertise she has. But for her, it feels like a move away from engineering. And I think part of why it feels like that and part of why she left the company is because the office, the Scottish office to which she had moved, had a rather nuts and bolts culture. Whereas had she stayed in the London office, it was a much more nuts and bolts and people culture. And indeed, at a certain level of seniority, she would not have been expected to do the detailed design work. And she kind of resented when the, the, the new office that she was being expected to do a bit of everything. They, they acknowledged she was very good at the upfront roles, getting new business in, doing design, concept design, interacting with clients and architects and so on. But she really didn't want to do detailed design anymore, and they, they didn't like that in this new office. So she, she was kind of squeezed out partly because of the business model didn't accommodate her kind of engineering and her kind of personality, and partly also because the informal culture was a really nuts and bolts culture, even though everybody yeah. does this interacting with people stuff as well. So, so you know, I think how... how real engineering gets defined and what the boundaries are put around real engineering can have a real bearing, actually, on who belongs and who doesn't in a quite material sense. You know, the fact that she left this company was a direct consequence of that. She, there wasn't an ease. But she's still engineer. She's still doing engineering. I couldn't do her job. And yeah. I suppose if we think of the number of male engineers who actually are not in engineering, in a narrow, se, sense. In a narrow mm -hmm. sense, then... You know, in terms of, if we take the, the totality of the numbers, there's an awful lot of, of men out there who potentially have, have rejected some forms of engineering for some of the same reasons that we may be um, looking at the issues for the women, really. One of the, the, the things that we notice about senior men and senior women who have moved out of engineering nuts and bolts roles is that the men will often continue to describe themselves as an engineer mm. and a woman mm. will not. Yeah. And this says something about the attitude of the rest of society to a woman who announces that she's an engineer. Mm. Yeah. Or, or her own confidence also. Although, yeah. In that. I think... Yes. It, it, well, maybe it suggests her sense of her membership as an engineer is, is more fragile than is that of her male counterparts. There's a lot of, yes, there's yeah. some interesting yeah. things to explore there. Yeah. But I think one of them is, as I say, the, the reaction. It is one of the comments when we get together as women engineers yeah. is that you don't get this step backwards when you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is a very, very common yeah. reaction that you meet. It's very interesting. Anyone else got uh, any further questions? Um, if not, um, I'd like to sort of round up this session and invite you to carry on talking and networking. There's, there'll be some tea served down in the, in the um, cafeteria area. So if people would like to continue conversations and, and so on, please stay for a while and chat. 
And I'd just like to say thank you very, very much to Jane and Wendy for um, speaking to us today and uh, providing a lot of stimulating ideas um, for us to discuss. And thank you all for coming. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you.